Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you know all things. Uh, You know all things, and we take such comfort in knowing that you know us, and that you know what you meant uh, in the book of Revelation. So we ask that you would uh, just give us some enlightenment now and next week. We ask that you would uh, pour your spirit upon us, that you would be our great teacher. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Revelation. Who, uh, who here has read through Revelation? Yeah. So, uh, you know, probably maybe, maybe not quite half. Uh, of those who have read through it, who understood it? <laughs> yeah, there are no hands. No hands. Better not see any hands here. Why is Revelation scary? Or why have you not read it? There's so much symbolism. That's that's so you don't know what the uh, you don't know what it what the symbols mean, right? What else? It's scary. What do you mean it's scary? Judgment, people dying. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. You know, that's uh, people die in our own world. And we live in it. <laughs> but I guess we're not exposed, exposing ourselves. And I, I don't disagree with you. There is. I mean, when that lamb starts opening the scroll, buddy. Woo! It's, it'll raise the hairs on your head if you have any left. Um, what um, Yeah, yeah. yeah so so yeah, you should be able to read it, Richard, with no problem. So that, that's great. Um, so Flannery O'Connor. You know, remember the great, the great writer Flannery O'Connor? She says this, she says, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking to it. When you have to assume, on the other hand, that it does not, that is, that your audience does not hold the same beliefs as you do, when you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And that's really, I think, a good description of what John is doing in the book of Revelation. He's shouting. He's drawing large and startling figures in order to get the message to those who just don't understand yet. And yet, in fact, the irony is that it is those large and startling images that actually we don't understand. And we would like for him to just tell us plainly. What is Revelation? What is it? So so you said, your first thing, Susie said, in times. Okay? What else? It is, it is Revelation, right? It is a v- in fact... If you are to approach the book of Revelation, what you should trust is that the goal of it is to reveal truth, not to obscure it. Its goal is not to obscure truth. It just does speak in images that we sometimes don't understand. It is apocalyptic literature. It fits a genre uh, called apocalyptic literature. It doesn't fit neatly into that genre. Because it also has some other qualities as well. But if you were to go and um, read some other Jewish apocalyptic writings from in that general time span, 
uh, you would find that this is not an entirely unique piece of literature. What's unique is that it made it into Scripture as the authoritative word. What's also unique is that it is, there is almost always intentionally, uh, what's, how do you say it, pseudonymous? It's, it's, um, it is written by someone under someone else's name. So, the Apocalypse of Ezra. It, it looks back at and speaks as if it were Ezra, but everybody knows Ezra didn't write it, right? So this is the Apocalypse of John, but John wrote it. So that's, there's, a, there's a difference there. Um, but it's apocalyptic literature. Uh, and, and typical of apocalyptic, he uses mysterious future images, uh, which, uh, and the message has been delivered supernaturally. So that's, that's um, typical. Everything's black and white. It's either or. It's good or bad. And, and apocalyptic literature is, um, the, the authors are extreme pessimists in the sense that things are so bad that only God can fix it. And they are extreme optimists at the same time because they know that God is going to fix it. That is the expectation. Things are so bad that only God can fix it, and He will. So it's apocalyptic literature, but it's also prophetic. And it says so. It says so much. It's um, prophetic. It expects the activity of God and the moral response of humanity in the present day. If you were to read, I mean, we've always said, and we've gone through the whole of Scripture, and we've said that you read the Bible the way it wants to be read. It wants to be read as apocalyptic literature and prophetic, but it expects that you have a moral response now. That you're not just saying, well, when the time comes, when the end time comes, when Jesus comes back. So here's what uh, the scholar Alec Matir says. He says, the message of, of Revelation to John's original audience was twofold. It brought encouragement in the true apocalyptic manner to Christians who were under great pressure assuring them that their enemies would in the end be destroyed and God would be triumphant. On the other hand, in the style not of apocalyptic but of prophecy, it challenged them to combat even within themselves the subtle forces of evil. For Satan must be overcome and Christ given his rightful place here and now in their own spiritual and moral lives. Do you, do you see that? Do you, are you following with me when I say it's both apocalyptic and it's prophetic? It, I'm, I'm getting, I can't tell if you're deep understanding or just blank stares. Yeah. So somewhere in the middle, right? Okay, so it's, um, it is uh, mysterious and it demands a moral response. Is that, is that plain enough? It is. Uh, it doesn't. So to know that it is apocalyptic and prophetic doesn't make it less scary, does it? <laughs> like, I mean, you're not opening up for your morning devotions reading, you know, the book of Amos. Maybe you are, but not many of you are looking through uh, Ezekiel. But you know, the book of uh, Revelation is really like a picture book. It's like a picture book. You know, it is not didactic Pauline theology. It is not Lucan historical uh, narrative. It's not the psalmist poetry. We kind of just know what to do with those things more in- instinctively, intuitively. Revelation seems scarier because it is wild and mysterious, but it's also wonderful. And in fact, it's the only book in the Bible that claims if you read it, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. 
So again, revelation is the revealing of truth, not the obscuring of it. But it's a little tricky. Um, there, but I will say this, there's very little imagery in Revelation that is unique to Revelation. And so, there are, there's lots from Daniel, there's lots from Ezekiel, and there are uh, lots from other prophets and other places throughout the Old Testament. So the better you know your Old Testament, the better you will understand Revelation. Every time I read through the Old Testament, I think, oh, I, I've seen that before. And every time I read through Revelation, I think, oh, I've, I say, it's just, you, they work really well together. So, who wrote it? John, the Apostle. Yes, no, again, supposedly. Yeah, so, you, again, you can imagine there have been lots of people who've, who have uh, um, made different, uh, tried to make this a different John than John the Apostle, and it may have been. But um, church history, and, the, and what I mean by that is those closest to it believed that it was the Apostle John, who was the only Apostle who was not martyred, but he was banished to Patmos, uh, in his 80s, and um, and lived in a cave, according to church tradition and history. Um, and so, um, and so, it is there, says the history, the legend, essentially, that the Lord spoke to him. How do we understand the Book of Revelation? Now, I'm going to get into the content of it, but I want you to, uh, I want to just affirm that there's there's four main views, and these don't have anything to do with millennialism. And because we'll, we're going to talk about that next week, the thousand-year reign of Christ, what do you do with that? You may have heard of pre-millennialism, post-tribulation um, millennialism and stuff. But four main views of how to approach the book of Revelation. Uh, one view says that it was only dealing with events in John's time. In other words, Babylon, Satan, all of these things, the big scary images, they all have to do with the Roman Empire, and it is all in the past tense. That's one view. And there's another view, sort of in the total polar opposite, that it is all future. Like Susie said, end times. This is the Left Behind series view of the book of Revelation. It is, none of this has happened yet. It will all happen when Jesus returns. Now, there's two other views. One is uh, that it's sort of a chart. The book of Revelation is sort of a chart of the whole of Christian history from the first coming to the second coming. That all of the things, and we don't know exactly what the timing is going to be for the second coming. It's not exactly tomorrow's newspaper, but it is uh, it's sort of a chart of the whole thing. And then the last one says, yes, there are probably some things dealing, especially in John's time, and certainly there's some things dealing with future end times, uh, but mainly we just understand that there are principles uh, we are to be they're taken to apply today uh, as Christians living in the world for every generation. Um, and you, it may not surprise you, that's the view I hold. Uh, you know, yes, I think there are some things that we, we had to do. I mean, had, had to have been. That's what John understood was his own time. Yes, I think there are some, certainly some things pointing to the future. And yes, I think for the best we can do is to take what we can from it and apply it today. Uh, that is called the idealist uh, point of view. I didn't give you the titles of all of these because it's not that important that you know what, what, the, what they're called. I'll tell you if you want. Again, millennialism, what do we do with a thousand-year range, post-trib, pre-trib, post-trib, amillennialism. We'll talk about that next week. The main thing is we come humbly to Revelation. 
We come humbly expecting it to reveal truth to us and expecting we probably won't get it all. (laughs) Well, definitely won't get it all. We expect that we will get a little more each time we go through it and we expect that we will be blessed along the way. Fair enough? Okay. So, actually, Revelation tells us what it is. Uh, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through uh, chapter, one versus, uh, chapter 1 pretty slowly, chapters 2 and 3 with some um, quickness, and then I'm going to, because I think they're really important, uh, but I'm going to just highlight those, and then I'm going to really touch on chapter 4, which is about worship, um, and then probably won't get to 5, 6, and 7, um, but that's okay, because that's when it starts getting weird anyway. Um <laughs> kidding. So, sort of. Uh, This is what Revelation is. Uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave it to Jesus. God the Father gave it to God the Son to show His servants the things that must soon take place. Soon according to whose timeline? That's a big question when we're talking about Revelation. He made it known, this is how it happened, He made it known by sending an angel uh, to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Okay, so, it's, it's God's Word given to Jesus, who gave it to His servants, and the way He did it, he gave it to His servants, He sent an angel uh, and gave it to John. Now, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So it says, you'll get a blessing, it's prophecy, and you're to keep what is written in it. If you can figure out what is written in it. So here's what's happened. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who uh, uh, is and who was and who was to come. Wait a second. Now it's not just apocalyptic and prophetic, it's also a letter. That sounds like Paul writing his letters. When he says, Paul, to the church in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. So there's a a letter aspect of this as well. An epistolary aspect. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To Him... As to Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's doxology. He's praising God uh, for this. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, if you have a red-letter Bible, that last part is in red letters. In fact, a lot of the first three chapters are in red letters. These are the words of the Lord spoken through John. And He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The Lord... uh, What what does that mean, He's the Alpha and the Omega? The beginning and the end. end. What does that mean? Yeah, the Alpha... So Alpha is, is the first letter in the Greek 
alphabet, omega, the last letter. So he's, he's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the A and the Z. Interestingly, the Bible begins, the whole Bible, we started it over a year ago, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is, in fact, the agent of creation. John 1, 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Right? Jesus is the agent of creation. He's there in the beginning saying, let there be light, and there was light. His word is His will. It happens, right? And He's there in the end of the Bible. The new heavens and the new earth, the return of Christ. He's coming, it says. Blessed, no, nope, there it is. Let's see. Behold, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. I can't, I got to tell you, this time of year, I get so excited. Uh, next week is Christ the King Sunday. I mean, I'm pretty excited about Christ the King Sunday, but what I'm really excited about is singing Lo, He Comes on Clouds Descending on Advent 1. I just, like, I, it really is a highlight for me. I know that's a nerdy thing to say, but I just, I so, I love singing Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. I know we sing it to a different tune than y'all are used to, but it's, we're, now we're singing with the, the right one. So, um, <laughs> um, He is literally, Jesus is literally the first and the last he is the Alpha and the Omega. He was there in the very beginning, and He is here now at the end. I'm going to read um, the ne- 9 to 15 now. I, he, so here, John is telling us now, because he's, he's, he's talking to the churches. Uh, remember, he's writing this letter. He's telling them what happened. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, his, his, um, he was telling about the Word of God, and he got in trouble for it, and he got sent to Patmos. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So it's, it's the Lord's Day. They don't have church on Patmos, I guess, so he's praying. And he's in this sort of meditative um, state, it sounds like. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I... I it's hard to even imagine what that, I mean, is it loud, is loud like a trumpet or it sounds like a trumpet? And if it sounds like a trumpet, how does it sound like a voice? I, but it, it was loud, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those are the seven churches he's writing to. It's a circular letter. It was to be distributed around and sent to all of them. And I turned, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. I think you would, right? <laughs> that was a loud voice, like a trumpet. I was turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. You know, like a um, menorah. There's seven, there's seven lights. No, it's seven, and and so, uh, and and in the temple, in the temple, the uh, the lamps, the lampstands were, were golden, and it was there was a, a central one, and then two, two, and two, so seven lampstands. Now I've seen artist renditions, and they're like they're singular, but this is clearly a a, um, a reference to the temple, the golden lampstands. And um, in the temple. And so, I mean, there may be menorahs that have more. I don't know. But the one in the temple had seven. And um, 
I turned and saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. Now, that sounds weird, right? You say, like, I thought you said the weird stuff didn't start until chapter 5. Well, this sounds, and this is a pretty crazy description of Jesus. White hair, sword coming out of his mouth, some golden sash around his his. Uh, waist, the um, burnished bronze feet, eyes like a flame of fire. Where in the world is John getting this? Well, glad you asked. Turn back to Daniel chapter 10. Here's what Daniel says. Uh, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His face was shining. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Or like raging water. So there's a multitudinous aspect to his. Now, either John is just plagiarizing, or the same God who revealed himself to Daniel all those centuries ago has also revealed himself to John. All of these things are symbolic. The way his, his hair was not, I mean, maybe it was white, but it symbolized his purity. His flaming eyes. He saw things for what they were. Uh, his feet were burn- like burnished bronze. Bronze is heavy. You know, it's, it stamps out evil. All of these things are uh, symbolic. So we have this pretty bizarre uh, entrance, but, but it's, I mean, we can make sense of it. We can see what John is saying. And just because we don't have that experience ourselves doesn't mean we can't appreciate it for what it is. That Jesus came to him. I saw him. I fell at his feet, though I were dead, which is the right response, right? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we know clearly now. It hadn't said it yet, but we know clearly this is Jesus. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, the lamps, he tells us right here what the symbolism of those lampstands is. These are the seven churches. They're, their whole point is to shine light in a dark world, right? And so now what he's going to tell us is whether or not they are actually shining light in a dark world. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches. Each church gets a little paragraph. Can you imagine? Early one morning, put on your bathrobe on a blustery 
November morning, you go out to get your copy of the Times Union because you still get your paper uh, in that way. You get in with a cup of coffee and you open it up. Expose! The Lord Jesus has come and He has something very important to say to First Baptist Church of Jacksonville and St. John's Cathedral and Christ Church Pontevedra and Mandarin United Methodist Church and the Church of 1122 <laughs> and St. Joseph's Catholic Church and... Uh-oh. The Episcopal Church of our Savior. What would Jesus say to us about our church? And that's what's happening. He is, he, Jesus is telling the world. Remember, this is a circular letter. Everybody gets to see what's going on in everybody else's churches. How would you like that? Would you feel good about that? Everybody gets to see. Now, we're not just talking about the live nativity. We're talking about the fight they had the other day. And the, you know, like it just... I mean, this is, this, is, this is vulnerable. What would? What, what? I mean, it really has caused me to think, I wonder. I mean, this isn't part of the survey or anything, but what, I mean, what would Jesus say about our church? You don't have to answer that. Please don't if you think it's negative. Well, you talk, talk to me after class. I, well, I mean, I don't know. What, it is a very important question. In fact, I think... We are going to do this. We're going to go through, at some point in the next year, we'll go through the seven churches, each one. I've done that a couple of times. It is really valuable. Uh, it's really valuable. You know, some these churches, Jesus has individual and purposeful messages for each one. And some are doing really well, and they just need a few tweaks here and there. Some need assurance. They're undergoing some really hard times. And some, they better get their act together. They're in trouble, right? They have a devastating diagnosis. How, how, might, how might churches learn today from going through these? What, what, what do you think churches might learn from hearing what Jesus had to say to these churches? Better get back to the commandments and be obedient. Okay, you better get back. We sound a little Old Testament there, uh, there, ML. Uh, that sounds sounds scary, but you do have your your hair is probably the most like Jesus of anybody's uh, here in this in this class. Why those churches are not the Church of Philippi or or any of the other churches? The question: Why why like uh, why these churches and not other churches? And and I, I don't think there's any way to know that except these are all in Asia Minor, and so Athens and Philippi and uh, they, Thessalonica they were they were not in this region. Uh, John had been serving in the church in Ephesus himself. Yes. My Bible says that the, um, on the reading notes, the seven churches were located on the main Roman. Road, so it was easy to hmm. pass out that letter, like their little old postal area. I, I understood. Kind they of were all in the same zip code. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I think. I yeah. think for every church then and now, what he says to the church in Ephesus is very important. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember who we were before we knew Jesus. Mm -hmm. And 
do the things you did at first. That means to me the basics. Get back to the basics. Yeah, he says to the Ephesians, you're doing great, but you've lost your first love. I mean, that, you're doing great. Awesome. But you've lost your first love. Like that, like you, him. I mean, you've lost your, you're going through the motions. That's a really, I mean, that would be really scary. They've had some incredible teachers at Ephesus. And they, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. We're not going to go through each one now. I, the one in Laodicea is I, probably the most famous. Um, that's the one where it says, you're lukewarm, would that you were hot or cold. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, that's a lot of the churches today. You know, it's true. They're, they're lukewarm. They won't take a stand. Mm-hmm. You know, for Christ. Right. And Glad we're not like that. Right. I mean, the thing is, we can look. I mean, I think a lot of this can 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 um, can describe the mainline churches today, especially uh, Sardis. Really, I think can really describe it. But um, and, and Laodicea too. But but you know, let's not look at the speck in our brother's eye. Let's always look at the plank in, in our own eye. Um, so, but it's really it's really important. I think you, there's great value. And going through these, you can see the sort of formula he uses. I'm not going to go through them now. I really I had wanted to read um, uh, the last two letters, but uh, in order to get to chapter four, I'm not going to have time. But I really want to do that. Chapter four is is a marvel to me. It is a wonderful, beautiful, exciting uh, picture of worship in heaven. You have these sort of uh, images, the Looney Tune images. Everybody has is dressed in a white robe with wings and playing a harp on a cloud. You know, that's just. Uh, I can remember somebody said, I don't really think I want to go to heaven if I'm just with a, you know, just playing a harp on a cloud. Like, <laughs> you're watching Looney Tunes. Like, that is not what, <laughs> that is not what heaven is like. Here's what heaven is like. Uh, he says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And that's what we, I mean, that's, that is what we pray for every Sunday that we come to worship, that there will be a door open to heaven, Right? And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So now he's given him a, a sense of what's going to happen in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit. So he's having he's, it's a vision. He's not actually there. Or maybe he's there, transported by a vision. I don't know. And behold, a throne. So it's like this rock concert. It's dark and now the... The central spotlight comes in on the throne, and you're going to see it open up wider and wider, and you're going to see what's around it. But right now, the first thing that comes to light is is a throne. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I don't really know what that is. Those are uh, precious stones. He doesn't take a lot of time, interestingly, to describe the one sitting on the throne, the, the, the Almighty, except with sort of images of colors and value, but not anything partic- more, more, uh, more than that, more distinct than that. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Well, an emerald is green, and a rainbow has all the colors. So I'm, it's hard for me. Is it just different shades of that? Is it... Is it a rainbow that is shiny and hard like a like? I, it's hard to know exactly, but it's, it's around the throne. This this sort of glory, this rainbow, 
is it hard? Is it mist like a rainbow? I, I doesn't say. Just it's like a rainbow. It looks like an emerald. We'll get there and we'll say, oh, I should have thought of that. <laughs> but, um, and around the throne were 24 thrones. So you got the big throne, you got 24 thrones. Why would you have 24? 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles. There you go. Linking the Old Testament and the New Testament era. 24 thrones, 12 patriarchs, 12 apostles clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Nobody really knows exactly what to make sure of that except this. The, the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit seven in the one? Uh, it's, there's a lot you know, different ideas about that. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So there's this really beautiful scene as the scene widens around the throne. You have the 24 thrones, you have the, um, the lampstands, the, uh, again, and the uh, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, and now this, this crystal sea around, uh, around the throne. And, and around the throne, on each side of the throne of the four, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Where, where have you heard that before? Daniel. The book of Daniel book of Daniel. What does it mean that they're full of eyes? They're all seeing. Uh, I don't know that it means they have you know, tons and tons of ocular membranes all over their bodies. I, I don't know. Again, it's symbolic. They can see everything. The, the first living creature like a lion. The seven, second living creature like an ox. And this is, So this is on each side. One on each side of the throne. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Where do you, where do you, what, what imagery, Old Testament imagery, does that recall? So you've got Daniel, you've got the, and then what else? Anybody? At least for me, it recalls Isaiah standing before the, the seeing God in the temple and the angels, the cherubim, they have six wings crying out, holy, 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 day and night. So again, it's very Old Testament, isn't it? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed. And were... There's just, this is this incredible picture of worship in heaven. Nobody's upset about it. Everybody's excited because all they just want to give glory uh, to the Lord. Um. So then comes the scroll. Then comes the scroll. Um, I want. Where is? Hmm. Where the uh, somebody who is uh, reading this? Show me where. I'm, I thought it was right there, and I must have overlooked it. Where are the the multitudes from every nation? I'm just. I've missed that. Oh. 
around the throne, this is in verse, chapter 5, 11, and I looked and around the throne and living creatures and the elders, uh, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. And I heard every um, creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down uh, and worshipped. So what we see is this picture. As, I mean, we have the throne and then the 24 elders and the crystal sea and the four, the four living creatures. And then we have the angels coming around. And then we, have, we do have the multitudes uh, coming around from every nation. Oh, you know, I think it is in... Uh, well, I think it's actually in, it's in chapter 7, actually, isn't it? So you have the, you have the 144,000 from the nation of Israel, and, and that's symbolic. Like, I don't... That's, that's 12 times 12 times 1,000. You know, that's, that's, that's not a... It's not a number. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you there's 144,000. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I think that's... A, it's, it's, it's the biggest number they can imagine. <laughs> 12 times 12 is a perfect number. Times a thousand is just infinitely perfect, right? And then the great, then this, so this is chapter seven. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So the will of God to be worshipped in heaven is that we're all there. That we're all there. What I want you to take away from from today, more than anything else, is that the book of Revelation is to be accessible, if not understood. It, it, is, it may seem strange. It may seem sad in some places. I mean, you start reading through the Lamb opening the scrolls, which we just kind of skipped over, and there's some bad stuff that happens. Woe be unto them. You hope that you die before it happens. You don't want to go through the tribulation. But God is in control. But the thing is, if you read the book of Revelation, you will be blessed. So I, I want you to get an idea that it is not scary. Or if it is scary, you can still handle it. Right? So, next week we're going to look at the very end. We're going to look at uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22. The new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to get into, because the E100 doesn't prescribe it, we're not going to get into uh, the the baby and the, um, the dragon and the woman and we're not going to get into that. Um, but wouldn't it be interesting? I've never, I've never taught through the book of Revelation. I've sort of been scared to. Maybe I shouldn't be. And, um, and so uh, it would be fascinating, I think, to, go, to try to go through that as a, as a church body or as a rector's forum sometime. So um, read it. Enjoy it. Be blessed by it. And next week we will finish... The E100! Wow. It's been a great ride. Thank you uh, for being here today, and go to church.